We're in Romans chapter 4. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And today, I want us to talk about how do you know for sure that you belong to God? Or maybe ask it another way, why do you think you are going to heaven? If you die today, and God were to meet you at the pearly gates and say, why should I let you in? What would you say? What would your answer be? I know it's cliche. Would you say it's my baptism? Did I do it right? Was it my repentance? Was I sorry enough for my sin? Did my life change enough? Most people feel like getting to heaven has something to do with their behavior. If you're good enough, if you believe enough, if you go to church enough, if you give enough, if you do enough. And people from other religions have the same criteria. They just switch some of the specifics. Instead of going to church to worship, they go to the synagogue or the mosque or the temple. Instead of going on a mission trip, they go on a pilgrimage. It's like we're always trying to make a deal with God. God, if you expect me to do this, and I do it, then I expect you to let me into heaven. So we make this deal with God. In some ways, I think that's to be expected because that's part of life where we make deals. We learn this as a child. Honey, if you eat all your vegetables, then you'll get some dessert. And our children learn to make a deal. Then when we're teenagers, we kind of perfect it. And now we even turn it to God. God, I know I'm running past curfew, but if you let my parents be asleep when I get in, I'll go to church for a month in a row without me. I'll teach Bible class. And we make those kinds. You ever done that? God, if you give me this job and make more money, then I'll be more generous. Lord, if this medical test comes back in a good way, then I'll start exercising. I'll start eating right. I can remember making a deal with God. I can share one publicly. I won't share some of them I've made through the years. When we were living in Montgomery, I went to a funeral of a friend. I didn't know the person who died, but I knew uh, the friend of mine, it was their relative, and so I just really wanted to connect with that one person. You ever been in that situation? And, and, but I had an obligation at the exact same time of day as the funeral, so I couldn't stay for the funeral. So I thought what I would do, maybe you've done this before, go a little bit early, you know, connect with your friend, and then not stay for the funeral. And then you can slip out the back and go and do whatever you've got to do. And so I thought, I'll do that. But the trick to doing that is you've got to park in the right spot. You know, because when you go to the funeral home, you know, they'll sometimes ask you, are you going to go to the graveside? You have to get in this line. And if you get in that line, you're stuck because you're going. You know, or there's another part of the parking where if you don't plan to do that, you can park elsewhere. And so I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll just park in the other part. But when I got there, evidently this person was dearly loved, big family, because there were no more parking spots. The only place to park was to get in line going to the funeral home, I mean, to the graveside. And I couldn't do that. And so <clears throat> I made my own parking spot. But I had to make sure I could get out. And so I pulled up beside the parking spot in this grassy area on an embankment and parked. And so then when I slid out, I can get my car and go on. And even though I was parked right next to the hearse and all the family cars, I knew I would get out before it started. So all was good. So I went in, saw my friend, had a good connection moment, glad for that. When it's time for the funeral to start, instead of taking a seat in the little chapel, I just kind of slid out the back, did a little run, walk to the car, feeling, okay, good, mission accomplished, got in the car, and was kind of on this embankment, and um, it wouldn't start. And it wouldn't start. 
And it wouldn't start. And it wasn't just like, oh, no, I've got car trouble. I'm sitting here right next to the hearse. That means everybody is going to w- drive by and go, this guy's parked in the grass on the embankment. What's he thinking? And so I did one of those prayers to God. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll never let it go below a quarter of a tank again. Because evidently, I had about a quarter of a tank, I thought. But did you know that if you park on your car, teenagers learn from me. If you park your car on an embankment, all your fuel goes to one side and you're as good as empty. But for some reason it worked. And I will tell you, I've never let my car go below a quarter of a tank. Or if I do, I remember that prayer I made, that deal I made with God. Am I the only one? Any, anybody else? Raise your hand. You ever made a deal with God? Some of you are honest. Yeah, raising your hand. Okay. I want us to open the word this morning, Romans 4. But I also want us to open our minds and open our hearts to what God wants to teach us today. Because we may think that we're going to heaven because we made a deal with God. We gave God our obedience. We did whatever it is. And now God's end of the deal is to give us heaven. But here's what Paul says. Romans chapter 4, look in verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting there from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You remember the story there. Then skip to verse 5 of chapter Romans 4. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Last week we were in Romans chapter 3 and we studied a verse that Martin Luther said was the most important verse in all of Romans. Some think Romans chapter 4 verse 5 is the most important verse in the whole Bible. This word credited, I put this on the screen, is a word, in, in the Greek it's logizomai. And what it means is exactly as it's translated, it's an accounting term. It means credited or counted. It means to count something as being there even though it isn't. And sometimes it helps to understand a term, to understand what it doesn't mean. So when you read the word credited there or accounted, that's what it means. What it doesn't mean and what he's not saying is that Abraham's faith made him act righteously for the rest of his days. That everything he did was perfect in obedience to God from that day forward. Because if you know the story of Abraham, you know that's not true. Abraham, in fact, the very next chapter... He shows first inconsistency, a moment of not believing. He doubts God is going to bless him the way he promised. And so he has a child with Hagar, his servant. You remember that story. Then there's the whole, she's not my wife, she's my sister thing. That was wrong on so many levels. But here's the point. These two things and so many others about Abraham's life happened after that declaration in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So Abraham having this faith credited to him doesn't mean that he acted right perfectly from that day forward. Nor does the phrase mean that faith is actually righteousness itself, as if faith were the supreme virtue of all virtues to have. This is the one thing that matters most to God. If you believe, if you've got the faith, then that's what matters most. Remember, this is Paul writing in the the, uh, book of Romans, but he also wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, If I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love, not faith. No, 
Faith is not the greatest virtue. Jesus himself summarized the law, saying, you've got to believe. No, that's not what he said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it doesn't mean that faith is so awesome to God that having it makes you righteous. What faith credited as righteousness means, and I put this on your study guide, God counts our faith in Christ as righteousness even though it's not. Righteousness is a gift that God gives us that we do not possess in ourselves on the basis of something else. The best analogy, maybe the best way to explain this, and I hope this is an appropriate way, word picture, is to think about playing a card game. Can we talk about a card game in church? You ever played a card game where you have a wild card or the joker is wild and part of the game is that wild card can be any other card in play? It's not a king, but you can count it like a king. It's not a forest spade, but it can be a forest spade if that's what you need. That's exactly the kind of picture we're talking about here. It counts as if it were something else. I'm not saying that faith in Christ is arbitrary. Simply that faith is not really a virtue per se. It's really a declaration that we have no virtue. That we are lost. And if we're going to be saved, it's going to be because of God's grace. Not our self-made worthiness. Or because we made some deal with God. Faith is us saying, I have to trust God. Because there is no way I can make myself righteous. I don't have anything else to offer. Look at Romans 4 verse 5. The one who is declared righteous has three primary characteristics. I've got this on your study guide with some blanks there. But look at the verse. However, verse 5. To the man who does not work but trusts God... Who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Three characteristics. The first, you know I'm ungodly. You know you are the wicked, as some translations render that there. There's an inherent admission in what Paul says here. I need to be justified. I am ungodly. Characteristic number two, does not work. It means you don't think you can do enough. You know you can't do enough to change your status. You can't earn your righteousness. There is no deal you can make with God. Does not work. Characteristic three, trust God. And what you notice, these are not my words. These are straight from Scripture. You trust God who promised to justify the ungodly himself. And the example he uses is Abraham. And what a great example it is. Look at verse 18. God declares that Abraham is going to be a father to a whole nation of people. But at this time, Abraham, when he gets that promise, is 90 years of age. He has no children at all. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. When you're 90 and you've not yet had any kids, and you've given up for obvious reasons, that's what he's saying here. Against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He said he knew it was physically incapable. He understood how things worked. Everybody understands. Way past age. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. He declared things that were not as if they were, because God said they were. Verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. 
The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit. There's that word, legizomai, account. Will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. When God raised Jesus from the dead, what he was saying is, I will accept that payment for your sin debt. And when we trust that as our salvation, God counts that as our righteousness. He gives us Christ's righteousness. Remember we talked about this last week? It's not just that we're, our slate is wiped clean as if we've done nothing wrong. This righteousness, this justification that we receive, we receive the righteousness of Jesus as if we've done everything right. It's the most amazing thing. God's righteousness is given to us as a gift. Not because our faith deserves it. Not because our faith equals it. But because God declared it so. It's the instrument. It's that wild card, if you will. That he will credit righteousness to our account. There is no deal that you and I can make with God. And here's why. Like Abraham, first, we are dead in our ability to please God. That's what he's saying here in chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. And the illustration with Abraham and Sarah is an important one. They were unable to have kids in their youth when they were of that age. They were infertile, we would say. Add to that fact, now that they're a hundred years of age by the time Isaac does come along. So they're doubly unable. Not just physically, but doubly. Doubly dead. See, Abraham and Sarah's story wouldn't be the same story if God had come to him and made this arrangement if they were 30 years of age. That's a normal childbearing years. And so people would look at that and go, well, of course you had a child. That's not necessarily God's doing. But if they weren't 30, they're triple that and add some. Well beyond. The only way you can explain this is God's working. In the same way, we are utterly unable to be righteous. Now, we tend to think of ourselves as generally good people. If we just try a little harder, do a little bit more, maybe we'll get a passing grade on that eternal final exam. I read where one man suggested if you ever want to just kind of recenter yourself with God, spend some time going over the Ten Commandments. Think, how am I doing with just those ten? No other gods. No other gods. Do I love and cherish God more than anything else in my life? Is He the most valuable more than any other person? Any other thing? Do I love God that much? Make no graven images. Am I satisfied with God? Who He is? How He's working in my life? Am I trying to make God into something that He's not? Honor your parents. Am I always submissive to the authority God has placed in my life? Isn't that at the core of that command, honor your parents? Whether it starts young as your parents, but also maybe police, teachers, boss. Thou shalt not steal. How many times do I appropriate things that don't really belong to me? Of course, you've got the cutting corners in business or maybe fudging on the resume, but what about when I take credit for something that's not mine? illegally download music or watch a movie or make a copy thou shalt not lie how often do I exaggerate to make myself look better or compromise the truth to avoid an awkward situation 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. You might be feeling good about this one until you realize what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about not even looking at someone. You might even commit lust in your heart. You're guilty of adultery. So then you get to thou shalt not murder and think, well, at least I can get a W on that one. But then again, we remember what Jesus said about having that same spirit of anger and hatred in your heart. Wishing evil on somebody. You ever done that? Somebody gets at you and you kind of rejoice a little smirk when something happens ugly to them. Thou shalt not covet. It means I'm always fully satisfied with the situation God has me in. I never crave someone else's income, their privileges, their talents, their family situation. You, know, you get through that list and I didn't even get them all. You realize it's done, not, not done very well at all failing grade do we really think we're a good person see we tend to think we're not that bad and the flip side of that is we tend to think that God is not that good remember a couple of months ago we talked about the holiness of God Jesus said unless we're righteous like our father in heaven is righteous we cannot enter heaven it's Matthew 5 this is his words righteous there's that word again of course, some people don't even bother with God's commands. They, they make their own rules, their own standard of what is right. You know, be good in business. Be nice. Be kind. Recycle. Only drink fair, dra- fair trade coffee. Do these things. That, that's what makes you a good person. And we talked, again, a little bit about this last week. See, a couple of problems with that. For one, we, we make those standards up. In what other arena can you make your own standard for what makes you a good person? Like, you can just drive up the road and sit in the class at Vandy, and, and, and the professor say, wait a minute, Randy, we don't have you on the list here. They say, oh, that's right, because I never really enrolled. Because I realized I didn't have the GPA, or I didn't have the ACT, or I didn't have whatever to, to get in, so I didn't bother. It didn't work that way. And no other arena does it work that way. Here's another problem. We're not even consistent with our own list. We're not even consistent with what we think of as good. One commentary illustrated the idea like this. We all use the word ought. You ever been talking with a family? Well, they ought to do this. Well, they ought to do that. If she would do this, if she ought to do that, or he ought to do that, if we took all the times where we just said the word ought and were judged by that, we still would have a passing grade. Well, here's the second reason we can't make a deal with God. We don't have anything to offer him. We don't have anything to offer God. Look at verse 4. I mean, a man works. His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Paul here just says the obvious. You do a job. You provide a service. And when they pay you, they don't say, okay, here's your gift. It's not a gift. It's wages earned. They're obligated to pay you that. And we understand that. But when we bring that kind of thinking to our salvation... It can create all kinds of problems. First, think about it. We don't have anything that God needs. Think about how foolish that sounds. God, I have some obedience to give you. Here's some worship I can give you. God doesn't need our obedience. God doesn't need our worship. Also, goodness in one area doesn't make up for breaking God's law in another. But we do that. Look what I do right. Look what I do well. Imagine being guilty of a... Uh, being tried in a jury of being uh, guilty of uh, assault and battery and during that you have an opportunity to plead your case and you say yeah but judge I always use paper and not plastic I have my own compost pile because it's good for the environment 
And the judge thinking, yeah, but we've got video evidence of you committing the crime. Suppose goodness in one area doesn't make up for totally missing it in another. Well, here's the third reason you can't make a deal with God. God alone gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. That's what he says. Look in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Actually, verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. If Isaac's birth was a credit of Abraham, then he'd be saying that, look what I did, and I was a hundred. How many people you know that? He could have easily boasted that. But what it says there in the text, but not before God, means God will not let this be. You can't say that in front of God. We might say, not on my watch, or over my dead body. That's what he's saying here. But not before God. If we earn heaven based on what we do, think about what that would do to us. When we get to heaven, it's like, what'd you do? You were faithful to your wife for 40 years? That's amazing. What'd you, you were that generous? You prayed that? That is amazing. It would all be about tooting our own horn, getting the glory for ourselves. In heaven, God is the only one who gets the glory. We get the grace, but God gets the glory. The only people who go to heaven are those who know they don't belong there. But there's nothing they can do to fix that. But like Abraham, they trust God for what he said he would do. And he's the only one that is gracious enough to fix that. You can't earn heaven. You can't make a deal with God. What this passage tells us is that righteousness, this full acceptance with God, is a gift that he gives us even when we're still sinful. See, it is possible to acknowledge that you are more guilty and worthy of condemnation than people could ever imagine. And yet you're more sure and more loved and accepted by God than you'd ever dare to hope. Because that status has been given to you, counted, credited, it's the word used here, on your account because of your faith in Christ, not you. Martin Luther did call this the most misunderstood doctrine in all of the Bible. And the doctrine that separates Christianity in essence from every other world religion. So, since you can't make a deal with God, let me close with this. Three things. Number one, stop negotiating. Stop trying to make a deal with God. Every religion in the world says you are broken. Now you have to fix yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you messed it up. God fixed it. And by faith you are made righteous. We receive it only as a gift. And because of that, then stop negotiating. God does not want something for you. You don't have anything to offer him that he desires. Let me give you a a test or an indicator to help you know when, when you understand this. You get this. You understand this concept, what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 4, when you are sure of your salvation. You know. You get it. And if you're not sure... If your answer a couple of moments ago when we started this lesson about getting to heaven, if you're thinking, I'm not sure, what that reveals is you're still negotiating. You're still trying to make a deal. When Jesus becomes my salvation, 
He is my confidence. He is my answer. And so if anyone asked you, how do you know you're getting to heaven? The one word answer is Jesus. That's how I know. Because that's how God says it works. I don't hope I'm good enough for God to let me in. But I've done enough for him to let me in. Like Abraham, just like Abraham, I trust God. That God is going to keep his word. And he was powerful enough to do that. So if God asks me, why should I let you in? Because you, God, are going to do what you said you would do. So stop negotiating. Leads to number two, stop boasting. Christians who understand the gospel are the least self-righteous people there are. Those who understand the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, I know a few Christians, and they've got mm, more than their fair share of self-righteousness. Maybe so. And what that reveals is they don't understand this. They don't understand the gospel. Maybe they think they do, but they don't. Imagine if you met Abraham after Isaac was born. 100 years of age. Abraham! Didn't know you had it in you. Pretty amazing what you did. What would Abraham say? Wasn't me. This was God's work. This was God's doing. God did this. Truly understanding the gospel changes us from being proud to being humble. And that one thing does more to change us than anything else. Gratefulness replaces that sense of, of being entitled. And gratefulness leads to gracefulness. And it's the foundation of Christianity, being grateful. Being a completely committed follower of Jesus means you get it. And you begin to be that to others, what Jesus has been to you. You want others to understand this good news. And I want to point out something, and we're going to discuss this in our home Bible study Tonight. So be thinking about this before you meet in your group. See, when Paul says in verse 5 that the Christians declared righteous does not work, those are his words, he's not saying that a Christian doesn't have to do any work. And again, we sometimes miss this one. He means the reason, the motivation to do good works has changed. You're not working in order to be saved to prove yourself worthy. He's said you are worthy, He's made you righteous. You work, you serve, you do, you give, you turn the other, you do all that you do because you have been saved. Paul himself admitted this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. See, what he's saying in Romans 4 is not, this is a pass, you just sit back and it's all done, and, and you don't have anything to do with it. See, the way you approach works is so different. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Which leads me to the third one, which we've already said. Trusting. Trusting. Go back to chapter 4, verse 5 once more. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Some translations render that believe in. Believe in. And that's a good translation, but it doesn't quite capture the idea. It's not believing in, like believing in God or believing that Jesus came back from the grave. Even the demons believed these things. Some translations render that believe on. And I think that's more accurate. 
When you believe on something. That gives the idea of trusting. It's like when you believe a chair can handle your weight. And so you put all your weight on it. You believe on it. You put all of yourself, all of everything you've got. That's trusting. That's what we're talking about here. Abraham trusted God. When God came to him and said, I want you to go to a far country. You don't even know where it is. Abraham trusted God. He trusted when God said to him and Sarah, you're going to have a child, even though you're old as dirt. He trusted God. Look at verse 18 again. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Then verse 23, the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone. This is our invitation. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. It's not just a story about Abraham. Abraham just illustrates it's a story about all of us. This salvation, this righteousness is not just for Abraham, not just for Sarah, not just for Paul. It's for all of us. Abraham, against all hope, in hope, believed. Our song of invitation is, My only hope is you. That's the first verse. My only hope is you. If you believe that, they want to give you an opportunity to confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let Him make you a new creation in baptism to give you the gift of His Holy Spirit so that you can realize that this is how you, because you believe, are counted, credited righteousness. Not because you earned it, because it's a gift. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?